of the three, all of these 13 are taken from the Rambam, Maimonides. And where did that come from within Maimonides? I'm gonna give you a little bit of history, but it's important. And actually, this is not just history for history's sake. It's really important so that we can understand the actual fourth attribute. So this is not just a history lesson. So in the Mishnah, in Perakhelech, perhaps this was discussed, I'm sure it was, in the earlier sessions. So in the 10th chapter of the Masechus Sanhedrin, Tractate Sanhedrin, the Mishnah starts off with the statement, Kol Yisrael Yishlam Chelek Le'olam All of Israel has a Chelek, a portion for the world to come. Hence, the name of the chapter is called Perak Chelek. And he quotes the Pasuk to support that. Then he goes on to say, And the following people do not. So every Jew is guaranteed a share in the world to come unless you do certain things to mess it up. And the following uh, are those people. Homer, someone that says there is no resurrection of the dead from the Torah. That's going to be one of the, the last one of the 13 attributes. The Intermina Shemaim, that'll be around numbers uh, six and seven. The Apicurus, and an Apicurus. For our purposes, Apicurus, that's where the word Epicurean comes from. But let's say an Apicurus means a heretic. So the Rambam says, if heretics don't have a share in the world to come, it behooves us to define a heretic. What is a heretic? So the Rambam at this point is his introduction. Before he gets into the explanation of the Mishnayos, the Rambam takes it on as his task to enumerate, and he boils it down to 13 principles. If you believe in those 13 principles, you are not a heretic, you are a believer. Anyone that denies any one of those 13 principles is a heretic and loses his share in the world to come. So we got to principle number four. Now, in principle number four, the words of the Rambam are, the principle number four says is kadmus. Kadmus means precedence, which is that we are supposed to believe that God, the one, who has already been enumerated and discussed in the idea of God's oneness has already been established in the previous three principles. He is the absolute first of any existence and every anything that is found outside of him cannot precede him in any way, shape or form. He brings the proof to that and he, that's pretty much the end of the quote. Now, it's really interesting to say that we, some at some point after the Rambam died in 1205, after the Rambam wrote this, some enterprising scholar, we don't know who, some enterprising scholar took the Rambam's definitions of the 13 principles, some of which are lengthy, maybe a page long, and he decided to distill them into 13 pithy statements, which could be... Um, recited, read, recited every day. And that became a custom printed in the back of our Sidurim after Shachris that before a Jew goes off into their work day, the first thing they do after Shachris, they recite the 13 principles of faith 
reiterating and reaffirming their belief in the 13 principles of faith. And all of them are built to be statements of faith. And they all start off with the words, anima me. So this author, whoever he was, when he read the Rambam, he decided to boil this fourth principle down to the following statement. Anima mi shlema. They all start like that. I believe with absolute faith. Shabore yisborach shemo. That the creator, blessed be his name, Urishon v'u'achra. He's the first and he's the last. Okay? He's the first and he is the last. We have to ask some questions about that. First of all, what was the first principle of faith? The first principle of faith was, I believe with absolute faith, that he is the creator and the conductor of all creations, and he alone did, does, and will do everything. Okay, so doesn't that pretty much mean that he's the first and he's the last? So what is number four doing? What is number four contributing to our understanding? Why is this an absolute statement of faith? And let me ask you another question. Let's say God wasn't the first. Maybe God came from a long line of gods. Hashem is the son of Hashem. Maybe he's Hashem, the uh, Esquire, the fourth. And he followed after Hashem the third and after Hashem the second and after Hashem the first. And he's Hashem the fourth. And he came into this existence coming from Hashem the third and follows along in that great line of Hashems who create everything that exists in their time. And everything, they're in control of everything. And then maybe at some point, who knows, a billion years from now, maybe Hashem the fifth will come along. Does that really matter to us? Does Hashem have to be the first? What if there was existence that predated him? Of course, you can only talk about dating there if there was something before. So if existence predated him, but yet he is absolutely and totally in control, more powerful than any other being that exists and in control of every of all of existence. Would that not be enough? Can you imagine? Can you imagine two Jews are sitting next to each other? And one of them says, you know, I believe that God is the first and God is the last. And the other one says, well, I don't believe that God is the first, but I certainly believe that he's the one that's in control right now. And he's absolutely in control of everything that exists. And I dive into him. And he said, put on tefillin, so I do. He said, shake a lulav, so I do. He said, keep the Torah, so I do. The other guy says, you're a heretic. You're not going to Olam because you're a heretic. Why? What's that all about? And I'd like to take this actually one step further. When Rabbi Foxburner contacted me and said that they would like me to participate into a session in this series, there was still a number of the 13 attributes, that, I mean, the 13 principles of faith 
that were available. And he sent me a list of which were available, most of them. And I said, I want to do number four. Now, why do I want to do number four? Because it's the most important one. If God is first and God is last, it's the most important one. How can I say that? Because that's the one I'm doing? No, I'll tell you who said it. The Rambam said it. This is the Rambam's words. And this is an amazing thought. This is the Rambam's words. Where did Rambam say this? 20 years after, approximately. 20 years after he wrote the commentary on the Mishnayos. The Rambam, in his own hand, penned an addendum to the commentary on the Mishnayos, wherein he enumerated the 13 principles. And the Rambam said, and you should know, the greatest fundamental principle of the principles of Moshe Rabbeinu. And he's talking about this in the context of all the 13 principles, who is the idea of the world coming anew. Creation, ex nihilo, creation from nothing. He brought it into existence. He created it. Uh, after absolute nothingness. So that's what we want to talk about. God being the first and God being the last. So what does it mean to be the first? What point is this? And what is it adding to our understanding that we didn't already know from certainly fundamental number one and, and perhaps even two and three, but mostly number one, what are we adding? So we have to ask then, what would be the alternative? What is so bad, as I said before? What if God was really, he's the God now? I mean, after all, he's the God now, and maybe he's going to have like a billion year run. That's certainly enough to take care of my life and my, uh, maybe not eternity, but you know, a billion years is a pretty long time. Um, what is the difference? What does it matter? So when we say that someone is the first, I'd like to pose the following question to you. Think about this. When I, I had a little exercise one time and I thought like, what is the greatest decision that I've ever made in my life? And I started to think about it and I started to say, you know, I don't really know if I've made any decisions. I said, well, what do you mean? Got married, you know, I was that part of a forced marriage. Uh, no one uh, tied me up and brought me to Atlanta. Um, you know, I was uh, the congregation that I'm the rabbi of, Congregation Ariel. I mean, you know, I didn't have a gun to my head. So, you know, I made many, many decisions. But I started to think about it. I said, but were those really, really free will, absolutely independent decisions? How many of my decisions and how much of what I've done in my life has really been determined by factors outside of myself 
ab uh, about which I really have no control. Well, start off at the beginning. My childhood, what did I ever do that was mine and uniquely mine? You know, I played with the toys that were given to me. I went to the, I was sent to. Uh, I must admit, perhaps getting kicked out of some of the schools that I was sent to was part of my own doing. But even then, I blame that on other people that had bad influences on me and made me be a bad boy. So a lot of the things that I did and a lot of the things that I continue to do are reactions to my upbringing. Still doing this, I still do that because my dad said, you gotta do that. My father drilled it into me, even though I've been spending all my life trying to get away from that, but yes, okay. You know, here's my therapy session and all that. I am a product of my parents and my upbringing. I am also a product of my society. I got up this morning and I took a blue and silver colored piece of cloth and tied it in a certain shape around my neck. Why? Why did I pick the one that I picked out to tie around my neck? Well, really, because it's determined by society. The truth is I did it because I thought you would all think it looks good. Not because I really want to wear that one, but you think it looks good. And by the way, why do you think it looks good? Because that's what society has said. So the clothing that we wear, the way we dress, I'm sure all of you right now are wearing uh, pants, shirts, skirts, tops, Nobody's wearing, I doubt anyone's wearing grass skirts or, um, you know, uh, rings of teeth sitting bare chested right now. We don't do that in our society. So we dress the way people in our society dress. We choose the shoes that we're wearing from amongst a certain type of shoes that are considered to be fashionable or Maybe you didn't choose fashionable shoes because you've got a medical issue or the shoes are more comfortable. Well, that's determined by your biology. And how did I marry the person that I married? Well, I married the person I married because of biological attraction and because I had certain vision of where I am supposed to go. Heavily influenced, I must admit, happily and proudly, heavily influenced by my rabbis who influenced me to, to take a certain track in life. And therefore I married the woman that I believed would be the greatest assistance in the path in life that I wanted to pursue and so on and so forth. So the bottom line is we don't make too many independent decisions, but independent decisions are very important. If someone says to me, my wife, let's say, says to me, Binyamin, will you do, th do this? Will you do this? She's being polite. Do this. Just do it. So she tells me to do it. And of course, what do I say? I say, yes, dear. I jump up immediately from whatever I'm doing and drop anything that I'm doing. And I go off and I do it. Of course, without a doubt, everyone does that, right? If I say to my wife, why? I have just completely dismissed her and her will. Why? Because when I say why, 
I want to know what's your reason. If you have a reason for doing something, then it's not really you independently. Like I said before, if I have a reason for marrying this woman and attending this school and putting this piece of cloth on my, around my neck, then it's not me. The reason I am forced to do this by whatever the reasons, circumstances, and causes are. So if I say to her, she asked me to do something, and I say, why? That means I want to know what is making you make this decision. And then generally, she'll either get uh, frustrated, which she should, because I've just totally dissed her, or she might start giving me reasons. Well, I want to in Yana, eat your broccoli. Why? Well, it's green, it's got iron in it, and you need more vegetables in your diet, and people eating more broccoli are less likely to have COVID, have to have COVID into everything, has to be factored into everything. So on and on and on. But all those reasons are not her. She's saying, it's not me, it's the reasons. It's all of those other reasons. And when I ask for the reasons, I'm saying, for you, I don't do it. For the reasons, I'll do it. So it's really very demeaning. The problem is, though, that, like I said, we all do things only for reasons. Where do we find true will, independent will? Where do we find true independent will? The only way you can find truly independent will is if you are the first. If you're the first, if you don't have parents, then you can't say my parents are making me do it. And if you preceded any society, you can't say society is doing it. And if you're independent of any biology because you came before any biology, you can't say I'm doing this because of biological factors. Only the first can have true will, truly independent will. When we say Hashem is first and Hashem is last, we'll talk about last, last, but right now we're talking about first. When we say Hashem is first, we are saying that Hashem is Ratzon. Hashem is will. Absolutely free will, which nothing else. Where do you find free will? Now Hashem, of course, this is going to be Later on, you'll get this, to this near the end, Hashem gave a measure of free will to us so that we could earn what we're earning and therefore, in a way, emulate him. That's going to be another class later on. So we do have a measure of free will, but the only absolute essence of free will, the only absolute will is God's will. And therefore, when we say that Hashem is first, what we are actually saying is that Hashem, everything that exists, everything that we see, everything that we know, everything that there is, is an expression of Hashem's will. It's an absolute expression of Hashem's will. Now, that is a hugely significant 
for us. In other words, Hashem is not doing this because. He's doing it because it is his will. If there's a because, then it's not his will. It's the because. If there's a because, you have to. Like I said, if you, say, if you can say why, and there is a why, but it's not you. It's that cause. But Hashem doesn't have any cause because he is Kadmon. He's reshown. He's the first. He came before everything. Everything is defined by him and through him. It's an expression of his will. So that's a very, very important factor and an idea for us to know and to live with. That everything that exists, me, you, the bookcase, the, the forum on the bookcase, the computer that is in front of me and the one in front of you, and the electricity is running through it, no, 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 everything is a product of his absolutely and totally independent will. So first off, that's a nice thing to know. I mean, we want to know, so, okay, what's the significance of his independent will? I mean, after all, whether it's his independent will or not, you know, if you have a king and the king says to do something, I don't really care if I'm being, if the king, if the king himself is reacting to outside forces or if the king is acting truly of his own will, it's meaningless to me. If the king says, do it, you do it, right? You have to, so you're stuck. So where does it really matter to me, the subject? Where does it matter if this is an act of the king's free will? It's the king saying to do it, I've got to do it. The reason why free will is important is number one, as I said, to know that I am an expression of God's free will. God chose to make me, chose to make you very significant that I should get up every single day and believe and understand and appreciate every moment that I am an expression of God's will. Shows a tremendous amount of personal interaction. I am an expression of God's will. The truth is anyone else and everything else is also an expression of God's will. So then as I go through the day and I continue to function and I greet and meet situations, I am not deceived by the situations in trying to figure out why they are and trying to solve their root causes, but rather I realize that these Whatever exists is evidence of God's will. So this brings me to the second point. First of all, point number one, don't get so bent out of shape. Understand that this is God's will. And knowing as we do that God is good and wants to do good, why does he want to do good of his own will? Of his own will. Not because he took pity on us, because then he would be motivated by pity. That's something that exists outside of God that he created. But rather, everything exists as an expression of his will. 
So when I confront things that happen in life, I have a certain amount of menuchas and efesh, equanimity in the fact of knowing that this, whatever is happening is God's will. But it also brings me to a second point and a very important point. And the second point is that if this, whatever this is, whatever is going on, is truly God's will, then how do I react to it? So let's say something is going on in this world, something that I don't like. I would like to see it stop. So there's two ways that I could look at it. I could examine its root causes and try to analyze it and see what made this, which led to that, which led to this, which led to this event happening. Go back and analyze it and try to get in and fix the root causes. This is what we do when we will look into medicine, for example. You go to the doctor, you have this condition. Doctor wants to know what's causing this condition. You look into it. I see this or that is happening. You know, it's due to a genetic, uh, you have a genetic uh, shortcoming, or maybe you have to change your diet or whatever might be something's going wrong, you had an accident. Okay, in light of that, we're gonna to have to do this. Okay, if you don't want that to happen again, be more careful, don't have the accident, or you know, have some genetic engineering or start changing your diet or whatever it might be. But I also could turn to God and say, This is your will. I should change God's will. God is his will. Why should I change it? However, God also, through his will, gave us a Torah. And in the Torah, he described many things that he wants us to do. And one of the things that he wants us to do, which shows up very, very often, at least in biblical times, was to bring korbanos, to bring offerings before God to serve him in his temple. And when we serve him in his temple, the Torah says, May it be will. May this be something that you find acceptable, that you integrate into your will. He invites us and offers us to pray to him to bring offerings to him, to serve him. And at the end of my Shemona Esrei, I say, May it be Ratzon. What's Ratzon? It's God's will. May my words be incorporated into God's will. Accept those words. Now, where would I have a husband to say such a thing? He told me to. That's what he wants me to do. He asked me, to do that. His will is that I should do that. Now, my will, <coughs> my part, is that I should try to identify as much as possible with his will and let my will be his will. And his will is expressed in the Torah. So when I have a problem,
they never go to a doctor and so on and so forth. Well, you know, we live the way that we do because God told us to do that also. God told us to go to a doctor. If it was God's will that I go to a doctor, if it's God's will that I wouldn't go to a doctor, I wouldn't go to a doctor. But it's God's will that I do go to doctors. That's the way he wants me to deal with it. And that's the way he wants me to deal with life. And he wants me to put on a seatbelt when I get in the car. And so on and so forth. Does he want me to drive a car? I don't know. You know, Chaim Kanievsky said that if it wasn't for the fact that everyone's already driving cars, he would say cars are, are, are illegal. They're too, they're too dangerous. People die. Every day people die. They get in cars and die. How are you allowed to risk your life by getting in a car? Okay, we have a rule in the Torah that once something has become universally acceptable, then it becomes the norm. And Shomer Psalm Hashem, God watches over those, the fools, and so on and so forth. Okay, all this gets into lots of detail. We're not talking detail here. I want to talk big picture. The big picture is that Ratzon, God's will, is paramount. And that everything that exists is an expression of God's will. And the only way we know for that to be effect is if God is reshown first. Because if anything came before him, even if it was God one, two, three, or four, anything that came before him, then you could say that he is doing what he is doing as a reaction to preceding events. But since God is reshown, then everything is not a reaction to anything. It is all a matter of his will. A couple of follow-up points to be made. Number one. The question that we asked. Let's ask the question that we all asked. Let's go right away to the big question. Why was there a Holocaust? And, you know, there's a million other little, uh, you know, why is so-and-so suffering and why did this tragedy happen and all that. It's all variants of the why the Holocaust. And like someone said to me, you know, why is there the Holocaust? Was it because uh, the state of Israel came from it? So Ramosha Shapiro says very clearly, the answer to the question of why is it's God's will. Why anything? It's God's will. To ask anything more than that already demeans God. Just like when I say to my wife, she says to me, I'd like you to do this. I'd like, I want that. If I say why, it's demeaning because it takes away from the free independent will of that entity. So to say why about God, any why question that is asked, the answer will have to be because God so willed it. To get into anything more than that, God wanted this. So, you know, we do this all the time. Oh, why did I miss the flight? Clearly God didn't want me to go there today because and all that. Okay, you know, all of that might be true. But it's a waste of time. It's an erroneous question. The question is simply, why did God do this? Because that's his will. Anything more than that? As a matter of fact, not only can I not fathom what the answer would really be, because I'd have to be able to do all God's calculations, but I'm saying that there isn't even a calculation. It is simply his will, and it stops with that. Another point that is very interesting to make 
patria of the word, the core source is the same as the gematria of the word ratzon, will. Because obviously the source of anything is in God's will. But the gematria of the word ratzon is also the gematria of the word ushmo and his name. His name. That's so interesting. You see, God has many names, as we see from the Torah. That's the way we know anything, anything that we know about God, we know from the Torah. You know, Avraham Avinu looked around, looked at the world, said there must be a creator. But he really, and whatever he could tell about him, he could tell that he must be very kind because he uh, takes care of everything and must be satiates every being and so on and so forth. But Avram was very limited until God actually introduced himself to him. And it says, you know, he introduced him, Bekel Shakai, with the name Shin Dalad Yud, Rishmi Hashem, but the name Yudke Bavke, Lonodati. They didn't know that. The Avos, they knew Hashem with one name. What does that mean, a name? A name. God's name, particularly, is an expression of his will. The name expresses his will. Shmo is Ratzon. Will. And that's all we need to know. When God expresses himself through a certain name, Hashem, Yudkevavke, Ishmochama, is a man of war. We know God at certain times. You know, Bereshis Bara Elohim. Elohim created Bereshis, created all of existence. And then later on, Vayomer Hashem Elohim, Hashem Elohim says, whenever we see God's names as they are used throughout the Torah and the expressions of them, Hashem Tzavakos Shemo, his name is God, the Lord of hosts. In every one of those names, it is an expression of a different facet, as it were because there are no facets to God. It's really like a human terminology. A, I'm going to call it a different facet of God's will, but there is no such thing as facets of God's will. He has no facets. You learned this earlier about God being one. There are no facets to his will. His will is just his will. The different names is how he expresses it to us who come at this with a limited perspective of being finite beings. So since we're finite, we can't grasp God's infinite Ratzon will. So it comes at us in names, various names. And in names, he shares manifestations of his will in different names that appear in different places in the Torah. So the name is his will, and his will is the source of everything because he is first. And he is a recording. Last, last. So let's wrap he's, it up. With he's a recording. This He's oh. not live. Why do we need to know that he's the last? I mean, he is. He's the first. That's pretty important. What does the last have to do with anything? The last tells me that he can make good on any promise. His will will be carried out. His will 
will come to fruition. You know, I might have all kinds of visions. Uh, I want my kids to do this and my grandkids to do that and my great grandkids to do this. And I want my shul to be this way and then in a hundred years from now. Well, the only way I even have a chance of having my great great grandkids do something the way I want it or my shul to be the way I want it a hundred years from now is to be there a hundred years from now. And it's doubtful. You have to be able to be around. But if you're going to be around, how long are you going to be around? I'll be around. Everything else will be gone. I will still be around. Then I can say, this is what's going to happen. I can stand by it. It will happen because I'm the last one and I'm the end. So all of my promises will be fulfilled. When we know this about God, that he is the first and he is the last, then that is truly a God that is worthy of our worship. And as a matter of fact, any other God is maybe worthy of your fear and certainly your acquiescence. I mean, you know, you had to acquiesce to Stalin also. But the love, the reverence, the worship, the dedication, and the sense of internal comfort of knowing that I'm a product of God's will and that he welcomes me and asks me to try to influence as it were, which is only by invitation. Otherwise you can't influence God, but he invited me to influence God. He says to Moshe, he says to Moshe, leave me alone, I'm gonna destroy them. What do you mean leave me alone? Meaning if you don't leave me alone, I won't destroy them, it's an invitation. That's his will, so he wills it. And that makes life to be a very comfortable and comforting approach. So thank you for listening. And uh, appreciate this. Any comments that you might have on this, please let me know. Um, like I said, I've tried to relay my understanding, my limited, limited understanding of the words of Ramosha Shapiro. And if I have fallen short on that, I certainly take responsibility for that. Okay, folks. Good wish you all a good evening. We ran a little late. That's because I delayed Hello, the beginning. Discover card here to explain our cashback match. Okay. We match That's all great. of the cashback you earn at the end of your first year okay. automatically. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Unbelievable. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply. That's my uh, YouTube channel, probably. That's Hashem's will. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it. Definitely Hashem's will. Anyway, you don't have to get that Discover card. Just Discover God. That's all. Forget the card. Anyway, good night, everybody. Be well. Good night. Thank you.